So you can turn in your Bibles or Bible app or the bulletin, wherever you can find it. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 8 through 20 of Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. You'll, uh, you'll also see that there is a, an outline in the, in the back of the bulletin for you to follow. And um, we also appreciate uh, if there's time, any questions that you may have following the message. So you can see my phone number in the bulletin, uh, 905-517-0936. You can text me those questions if they pop up in your mind. Um, and uh, we'll be happy to try to answer them at the end of the message. So beginning at verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David... A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is God's word. Um, around the middle of the 20th century, so in the 1950s and in the 1960s, uh, a lot of uh, what are called futurologists, these are uh, academics who try to predict the future based upon uh, cultural trends and, and technological and economic and political trends that they see happening in the world. A lot of them were noticing that there was a tremendous development in technology uh, over the last number of decades, the last 50 years or so, that things were picking up at such a pace that they... They said that as, as technology continues to advance and as it gets more and more advanced and accelerates more and more, religion and religious observance would actually start to decline. So ancient human beings didn't understand science, didn't understand how the world worked, didn't, didn't understand all these things. And so, so the natural world seemed very overwhelming and seemed kind of hard to control, and so what you did was you appealed to a supernatural being, a god, in order to make sense of the things you couldn't understand, and in order to feel safe in a world that felt very unsafe. But as science advanced, and as science explained these phenomena more and more, 
then we would need God less and less and human beings wouldn't uh, be as religious as they are. The strange thing is, however, is that actually in the last 70 years or so, the exact opposite has happened. It's a very curious phenomenon. The more that science has explained what's going on in the world, the more that science has kind of uh, removed the mystery behind some of the phenomenon that we see happening around us, the more human beings actually have become spiritually thirsty. They've longed for experiences of mystery, experiences of transcendence, experiences of the divine. So if you look, especially in the last 50, 30, 40 years especially, uh, the trends are that uh, religious observance of all kinds is going up. I know in Western culture we go, oh no, the Christian faith is falling apart and nobody's believing in God anymore. And that is a concern, absolutely. Other parts of the world, it's exploding. You go to China, you go to Latin America, you go to Africa, Christianity is, is growing so fast they can't track it, frankly. But in Western culture, where people have gotten tired of traditional religion, lots of non-traditional faiths are becoming very popular. I just read recently that the, guess what the fastest growing religion in Western culture is today? What would it be, you think? Who wants to, who has the guts to be wrong in public? What's that? Jehovah's Witness, good guess, but no. No. <laughs> Few. I'll give you one more. Nice guess, but no, it's not that either. It's actually Wicca. Now, Wicca is not Satanism, okay? Wicca is basically earth worship, right? The spiritualizing of the natural order. That's what Wicca is, and it is the fastest growing religion in Western culture right now. And I read one environmentalist who said the reason for that is, is because human beings have a natural, now this is a secular environmentalist saying this, human beings have a natural longing to connect with something divine, something supernatural, something transcendent, and since we have fallen out of love with God, meaning the God of the Bible, we have fallen in love with the environment, with Mother Earth. Very, very interesting. It's not just Wicca that's growing really fast. There's New Age astrology, all this kind of stuff. I walk the streets of Dundas, and I always walk by this one store who uh, is doing um, tarot card readings from uh, 3 to 5, Monday through Friday, in case you're interested. You better not be. No. Uh, um, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of interest in spirituality. In fact, it is believed that since World War II, there have been a thousand new religions introduced in the United States and about 800 new religions introduced in Great Britain alone. And so it seems like the more we're told by the scientific academic world that there is nothing, 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 nothing beyond the physical that we can see with our eyes, the more we long to connect with something transcendental, something beyond us, something supernatural. Well, we talked about last time that human beings have a longing for beauty. 
This morning we're going to talk about how human beings have a longing for transcendence. And it's, it's something we cannot shake. We need desperately to connect with something bigger than us, outside of us. And you know what's fascinating is that uh, in, during the 50s and 60s, around this time, uh, there were a lot of Christian churches that said, you know, if we're going to... Uh, if we're going to connect with our modern culture, we need to understand this trend and we need to follow suit. And so there were Christian uh, churches that started basically getting rid of the supernatural elements of the Christian faith. Didn't preach about virgin births or about Jesus walking on water or Jesus being raised from the dead. These things were seen as, as sort of religious metaphors that help us understand truth in a, in a, in a more sort of... Uh, uh, spiritual, supernatural way, but what the stats have shown is that churches that have done that and have embraced that, they have declined dramatically, and churches that have said this book is the divine word of God and that Jesus is the Son of God who actually lived in this world as uh, the God-man and walked on water and died a substitutionary death on the cross and then rose dramatically and physically from the dead and resurrected and then ascended to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit into this world. Those churches, those sort of fundamentalist churches like this church are the ones that are growing. Because if you, I mean, at the end of the day, you and I probably know it makes total sense. If you, if you divorce the supernatural from the religious, what does the religious really have to offer anymore? Right? Anyhow, what we're going to do is we're going to think about this need to experience the divine, what it looks like to experience the divine in three points, probably. God must come to us. We must respond to God. Oh, two points. There you go. Only two points. So let's have a look at what this text teaches us about experiencing the divine and what that looks like. Okay. First point. When it comes to experiencing the divine, experiencing the transcendent, Scripture teaches us that God must meet us. National Geographic, only a number of decades ago, or, uh, yeah, probably a couple of decades ago, did a, uh, a series on the different religions of the world, and their title for that series was Man's Search for the Divine. And basically behind every religion is this human impulse to search for the divine. And people would agree. They would say today, you know, I'm on a spiritual quest. I am on a spiritual journey. Maybe I do yoga. Maybe I meditate. Maybe I go to an ashram. Maybe I visit a temple. Maybe I read uh, uh, books like Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, or maybe I'm the author of Eat, Pray, Love. You guys remember that book? Very popular book. And I am, I am on a spiritual journey and on a spiritual quest to experience, to discover the divine. And that's kind of the language that is very popular uh, today in our culture. Contrast that with what the scripture says about our connection with the divine. Here's these shepherds. And they're just minding their own business. They're working hard, tending their sheep. They've been herding them all day, and now it's nighttime, and they get the sheep settled down, and they're about to sit down, 
and have a sleep themselves because they're pooped out. And all of a sudden, boom. Verse 9 of chapter 2. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Now they certainly were not expecting uh, God to appear, just show up and, and, and reveal himself to them. Because even if you were a religiously observant Jew at that time, and these shepherds most undoubtedly were, they had no expectation of God showing up because it had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people. The closing of the Old Testament, the opening of the New Testament, okay, so between Malachi and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a stretch of 400 years known as the silent years where God did not speak to his people at all. So there's no way that they were looking for God or looking for an experience of the design. All of a sudden, boom, they meet this angel and they're freaking right out. They're terrified, understandably so. And then, of course, the choir shows up, so that's one angel, and then all of a sudden, I don't know, 10,000 angels, and angels we just assume are very, very bright, and they probably were very bright, and they were overwhelmed by this revelation of God. Here's the point. Nobody, not those shepherds, not you, not me, nobody is naturally looking for God. On our own, not a single one of us is actually looking for God. He must always be looking for us. There are no seekers in the Bible. Look at the story of Abram. He's just a happy, well, happy, I don't know if he was happy, but he, he was a pagan in Haran, and boom, God showed up to him. Look at Moses. Moses is just out there in the desert tending sheep again, and boom, God shows up and, and uh, reveals himself to him. And Isaiah, you know that picture of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and all of a sudden he gets this vision of God in the throne room of God. The Bible consistently says over and over and over and over again that we're not really seeking after God. If, God is, if you're going to have any experience of God, he has, to, he has to show up to you. And if you think about it, that does make sense. Because think of it this way. Can an ant seek after you? Like, not your ant, but an ant. Okay? Think about it. You sit in your backyard, you're on your patio, and there's an ant just walking around. The ant, because of the smallness of its nature, because it isn't much of a thing, it, it doesn't have a consciousness, it's, it's not an advanced, sentient being, it doesn't have an awareness of you, but you can reveal yourself to an ant, right? You can stomp it. Well, I guess you're not really revealing yourself because it's dead now, but you could... You know, you put your finger in front of it, and all of a sudden it goes, hey, wait a minute. Oh, now i got to go. It doesn't really know much of what you are, but it now has an awareness of you. You have to reveal yourself to it. The greater must reveal itself to the lower. Well, if that's how it is between you and an ant, does it make any sense that, that it would, or doesn't it make sense that it would be no different between us and God, given the, the gap between his nature as a being that is all glorious, all powerful, all majestic, just beyond our understanding, and us, little human beings, we would need him to condescend to us and reveal himself to us. We would never comprehend God if he didn't show himself to us. 
And that's precisely what the incarnation is about. It's about God revealing himself to us, showing us what he is like. The striking, shocking, mind-boggling thing is that he decided to do it in the form of a human being himself, in the form of an itty-bitty little baby. Now, here's the point. I, 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 what I love about our church is that every Sunday there are lots of new faces of people that I don't know real well. And frankly, because we're a young church, there's lots of people here I don't know real well, even though you've been here every week for the last year and a half or whatever. So I can say this, and, and you can't think, oh man, he must be talking to me, because I don't know. Do you have any interest in God at all? Just because you're here doesn't mean you do, okay? Just because you're here doesn't mean you have an interest in God. Maybe you have an interest in church. Maybe your mom made you come. I don't know. But if you do have any interest in God at all, if your curiosity is piqued even just a little bit, you know what that means? That means he is coming to you right now. He's coming to you right now. He is showing himself to you right now. He is revealing himself to you right now in this place. God is here. If you have any curiosity about him at all, he is working on your heart in this moment. Freaked out yet? So what do we do? <laughs> I hope he's coming to all of us in this moment. What do we do? We got to respond. You got to respond. That's point two. We got to respond, and we're going to see how two different groups of people respond. We're going to see how the shepherds respond, and then we're going to see how Mary responds. First of all, the shepherds. The shepherds respond to this revelation, right? The angels sing, and they tell them this great news, and the angels don't just sit there and go, cool. They actually do something about it. They investigate, investigate right? Like, look at verse 15. When the angels had left them, and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They investigated. They inquired. They, they, they looked into it. They, they acted upon what it is that they just heard. And listen, some of you need to hear this, please. You have been told... That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You've been told that he came into this world to live the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died. Maybe you've been told that a hundred times. Maybe this is the first time you've been told that. Like I said, I don't know. But the problem is, is that you have really done virtually nothing about it. You've been told. You've been told this incredible news that God chose to come into this world. He, he punched a hole in the roof of the world, that slab that, that, that was the barrier between our world and the spiritual world. He broke through. He became part of this world. He has revealed himself to us. And you've heard that over and over and over again. And all you've ever really done with that is said, well, that is very interesting. Or maybe you've said, well, that's very nice. You know, Christmas time is nice, eh? Like, you ever look at a Christmas card? They're always this kind of soft lighting and this warm glow around the manger, and it says peace on earth, and you go, oh, that's nice. Isn't that nice? 
may I submit to you that if that's all you've ever done, that is incredibly foolish. Because if this is true, then it is the most important truth ever. Search the greatest libraries of the world that contain the greatest truths of philosophy in history. Search them all, read them all, and there is tremendous wisdom in this world to be found and uncovered. Be like Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings and go to Gondor and uncover scroll after scroll and blow the, the dust off it and read these ancient truths that are so mind-blowingly amazing. Go and do all that, but understand that out of all those truths, if this one is true, that God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, if that one is true, that trumps every single other truth that could ever be discovered. And everything, I mean absolutely everything, changes because it's true. It means that everything Jesus said was true. It means that everything the Bible teaches is true, which means that you are not an accident. You are not just a random collocation of atoms. You were knit together in your mother's womb. There is a being, supreme being out there who knows you intimately, who knows the numbers of hairs that are on your head, who has set before you a plan for your life, some of which you totally don't want to participate in because it's really, really hard and you don't understand why he would do this to you, but he's done it anyway. It means that history is actually linear and it has a beginning and it has an end. There's a purpose to it and it's going somewhere and there's going to be an end to history and at that end of history, we are going to meet him face to face and we are going to have to reckon with him. It means that everything you thought about life and the purpose of life has to change. It affects what you think about death. It affects what you think about family. It affects what you think about money, art, politics, fashion, food, everything. but you're still living like nothing has changed because you're not responding. Um, there's a fascinating story. That, um, have you heard of the Japanese holdouts? So in, the, in World War II, in the Pacific Theater, uh, Japanese there were many Japanese soldiers who were stationed on various islands throughout the Pacific and they had very limited communication with the rest of the, the Japanese military and so when World War II ended, they didn't even know that it was over yet. And so there's a story of one in particular, a guy by the name of Hiro Unada. World War II ended in 1945 and he was on a small island in the Philippines and his job was to make sure that the Americans didn't take that island because there was an airstrip on it and they'd be able to land there and then fly further into Japan. Anyhow, for 30 years, well 29 years, for 29 years this guy did not know that World War II was over. And so he lived as though World War II was still going on. And Leaflets would try to get, they tried to drop leaflets on his, uh, on his island. They tried to send people to tell him they, that, that, uh, that the war was over. Uh, they tried to, set, uh, he had a radio, so they sent news stories about the end of the war, and he wouldn't believe any of it. He wouldn't believe it. He wouldn't respond to it. He wouldn't even go and find out. 
He refused because it was all just a trick, you see. The Americans were trying to trick him. And so for 29 years, this guy held this island, refusing to find out whether the rumors were true. The rumors were true. And he lost three decades of his life because of it. Are you here this morning and you are losing time off your life? Because you've never even inquired whether the rumors are true? What a tragedy that would be. And so, inquire. Respond. Well, how do I respond? What do I do? Now we're going to focus on Mary. Wonderful, wonderful Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary shows us how to respond. In verse 19, it says this, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now, this, it's funny. This verse seems a little bit out of place because the context, it's all action, right? The shepherds are coming and they're witnessing and they're seeing and then they're off and they're telling and, and, and the angels arrived and they told their story and then the news and then they took off. And so there's all this action and stuff going on. And then there's this Mary. Mary, she just, it looks like she's not doing anything. She's singled out, in fact, because what she is doing is rather unique, but so important. It says that she treasured up all these things in her heart. In other words, she, and she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. What does that mean, to ponder something? It means to think deeply about something. It means to concentrate really hard on something and try to figure it out. Some of you, part of your job or your education is problem solving. And when you sit there and it looks like you're doing nothing because you're going, and you're trying to figure out a problem at work or in school, you're pondering, you're bringing your, your intellectual faculties to bear on a specific issue. One scholar said that to ponder is an indication of an extended period of sustained reflection by someone trying to make sense and plumb the depths of all that they have experienced. So it's going under the surface of, of the events of things to get at the significance. So here's Mary, right? Mary has experienced so much. She, she got her own visit from an angel, and the angel said, you are going to give birth to, uh, the, to the Son of God. And she's like, what? I know how that works. Trust me, what is conceived in you is from the Holy Spirit. And don't think naive, you know, like it's because she... No, I was going to make a joke. I won't make that joke. Uh, don't think she didn't understand how ba where babies came from. She very well understood miraculous pregnancy, and she has this belly that starts growing, and she feels this baby inside of her, and then she has her cousin come to her, who's also got a baby inside of her, and the cousin says, you're going to have the baby, it's the son of God, and Mary's like, I know, or no, but she goes to her cousin, sorry, uh, and you're going to have the son of God, and I know, I'm going to have the son of God, and then, and then as they mention that, the baby inside of her cousin leaps for joy, it doesn't just kick, like, I don't know how you could tell, but somehow they could tell that this was a leap for joy, and she gets this other revelation, because then her cousin 
prophesies. And then she gets this, she has this baby, and she hears all of a sudden these, these shepherds show up, and these shepherds start telling them what they experienced. They saw these angels, and these angels made this announcement, and she's sitting there trying to understand everything in order to interpret it. She's trying to interpret her experiences. And that is hard, okay? That is hard. It takes concentration. She, it says that she treasured up all these things. In other words, she, she locked them in her memory. She, she, she remembered these experiences. Listen, some of you, and I'm one of these people, okay? I'm preaching to me right now. So, I'll, okay, some of us, all right? Some of us. We are not very reflective people. Doesn't mean we're shallow. It might. I don't want to admit that, though. So things happen in our lives, and God is making all kinds of connections in our life. He's introducing us to people. He's inviting us to experiences. He's making things happen in our lives, and we just, they just go. And we don't even notice that they're happening. And sometimes he has to be extremely, I mean extremely blunt or blatant about it in order for knuckleheads like me to actually notice that he's doing something. But when you open yourself up, when you start to open yourself up to experience God's work in your life, these experiences, you will start to see them. They will start to show up. When we decided to plant this church, you know, then you become desperate, then you become really afraid. And then you become really dependent on God. And then you become really open to seeing him at work. Because you're like, if you don't, uh, this whole thing's going to fall apart. And I'm going to look like an idiot. And my life will be over. So can you please do something? And he starts working. And you start seeing, connecting the dots. Seeing him do amazing things. We have a couple here. I'm not going to point them out in case they, they get embarrassed. Or, well, not embarrassed. But it was a really cool story. We have a couple here where they showed up on a Sunday because they saw our signs on the street. But when they met the greeters at the door, they knew the woman that greeted them because they had met that woman on a bus just two days earlier, randomly. To treasure up means to, to, to be open to God being at work and asking him to open your eyes to see him being at work. Maybe you've got to write these things down. Sometimes Jessica would say that to me, Paul, you've got to write these things down. Not so that you have a book necessarily, but so that you can remember the story of God doing incredible things. How this makes you feel, but more. It's not just sort of warm fuzzies about the Christmas story that she was experiencing. She engaged her will as well. Whenever the heart is used in the Bible, it's talking about the, the will, the center of who you are. And so she was thinking about what this means for me, how I live now. That's what it means to treasure up these things and ponder them. How am I supposed to respond to this? What does this mean for how I live? In light of these truths and these experiences, what must I do? Because if they're true, it's got to have an impact. If it's true, it's got to have an impact. Listen. Julius Caesar fought a bunch of wars called the, the Gallic, Gallic Wars. He fought a bunch of wars called the Gallic Wars. The vast majority of our knowledge of what transpired in the Gallic Wars were actually written by Julius Caesar himself. And so sometimes scholars are like, eh, did it happen? Didn't it happen? I mean, history is written by the winners. 
How can we be sure? What if at some point there was a newspaper headline that said, Gallic Wars, a sham. Julius Caesar discovered to be a fraud. You'd read that and you'd go, okay, well, I guess whatever grade 10 maybe history. I got to forget some of the stuff I learned. It wouldn't really change your life. It wouldn't really affect your life, would it? But this truth is not like that. This truth is very, very different because this truth actually makes a claim on your life. If Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world as a little baby, when he says stuff like, like everyone must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me, that's a truth that you need to reckon with. There's no whatever with Jesus. And so we all got to ponder we all got to treasure these things up and think them out carefully. And, you know, for Mary, this was the beginning of her pondering. I don't, don't think she pondered it and went, oh, I got it all figured out, okay? There were lots of times, you read the Gospels, there are times where she's like, ah, what's going on here? Uh, you know the story of the, the wedding at Cana? You know, she, she's not sure what Jesus is supposed to be, right? So these two poor kids, they ran out of wine at their wedding. And so she runs up and she says, they're out of wine at the wedding. And he looks at her and he goes, woman, my hour hasn't come. Yeah, well, what do you do with that? She, she continues to ponder because she goes to, the, to, the, to the, uh, the people at the wedding and she says, do whatever he tells you. She's still working it out. At one point, she even opposes his, uh, his decision to go to the city to go to Jerusalem because he's going to be in danger. But finally, by Acts chapter 1, we read that she believed the gospel too. She's numbered among the people who are waiting in the upper room and praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, why am I belaboring this? It has everything to do with our longing for transcendence. Here, here's what I'm trying to get at. What you hear about spirituality most of the time now is actually very Eastern in its thinking. It's this idea that what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to bypass our intellect, we're supposed to disengage our minds, we're supposed to empty ourselves. You know, meditation. Find your Mandela, focus on that, clear your mind, become one with nothing, which is at the same time one with everything. The Christian way to experience the divine is not by emptying yourself, it's by filling yourself up. It's by filling your, yourself up with the gospel, with biblical truths. And that is way harder to do. It's way harder to do that. Ladies, how many of you have walked in on your husband who looks like he's doing nothing and you say, what are you, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? And they go, nothing. <laughs> Nothing's easier than something. Remember, human beings, we're like water. We just want the easiest way down the hill. This Christmas, ponder this thought. In Jesus Christ, the transcendent God came down. Now what has to happen for, that to, for him to do that? In order for him to do that, he had to give up. He had to sacrifice. He had to, Philippians 2 says that Jesus set aside his, his glory it was it, at incredible cost. God came into this world 
And he lived for us, stripped himself of his glory, stripped himself of his comfort, of his majesty, of his status. He became a servant who was obedient to death on a cross. Ponder that. What does that mean for you? I think we heard the song, I'll close with this, we heard this song uh, just a, a few minutes ago, at the beginning of the service, maybe before we started, uh, that song, Mary, Did You Know? Mary, did you know that your baby boy, da-da-da. Now, okay, thanks to pentatonics, it's a little more cool of a song, but it's maybe a little kitschy, right? If you understand what it's trying to say, though, it's actually pretty profound. It's not that Mary didn't know. It's not like Mary was sitting there going, I don't get any of this. The words of that song, though, they put into terms, in, into beautiful words, what we're trying to talk about. Listen to this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Now, what a thought that must be, holding your baby boy. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? What does that mean? This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Hmm. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Did you know that your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby... You kiss the face of God. Huh. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect Lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I Am. Let's pray. Father, teach us to ponder your word and the truths therein. May we not just leave thinking, huh, interesting. Isn't that nice? But may we, may we stand in awe that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Do this, we ask, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.